This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We have seen the growth of groups working together to bring forth successful business projects, but there are also organizations that have been around for some time now that rely on great culture as a part of their success. Daniel Coyle writes about this in his book, The Culture Code, The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups. Daniel's a best-selling author as well as a special advisor to the Cleveland Indians Baseball Club and a contributing editor to Outside Magazine. It's a pleasure to have him joining us on the show. Dan, welcome. Thanks for uh, joining us today. Thanks for having me, Dan. It's good to be here. Thank you. And, and as somebody who worked in minor league baseball for 13 years, I understand a little bit about the culture of, of a baseball team and how important that is. It is everything. You, as you know, you spend a lot of time together and good groups with good chemistry and whatever we want to call that, that feeling you get with a good team, uh, it ends up being a huge asset in performance. It, it plays out on the field as it does in business, as it does in art, as it does in family. In every walk of life. And you ask an important question literally right at the outset of the book. Why do some groups add up to be greater than the sum of their parts and some are less? So I pose that to you. In looking at all the different examples that, that, uh, that, that you uh, did for this uh, book, what are some of the keys that you saw? Well, it is, it's to pull the camera back for a second, I mean, it is the most, it's the holy grail. It's the thing that when we've all been parts of groups that add up to more, where you feel that connection, that belonging, and that group is able to accomplish great things. And when Harvard did a study uh, tracking average culture versus strong culture, strong culture was worth 782% of net revenue, bottom line, over 10 years. So it is massively, you know, the old joke that it eats strategy for breakfast isn't just a joke, it's true. So having... Strong culture is absolutely the key. We've always thought of that as being a soft skill or a soft stuff. The culture is this soft kind of indefinable thing that's very nuanced and complex and individual. Well, science has given us a new look behind that. It's pulled back the curtain to show a, a language that's happening beneath that. Not a language of words, but a language of behaviors that create connection and safety, that create openness and, and exchanges of information, and that create direction. And so... Basically, our brains are wired to form groups, and if we align our behaviors with these kind of ancient languages that are wired into our brains, um, and languages of creating safety, of creating vulnerability so that you can share accurate information, and of creating story so that you can decide on a direction, that's what all these great groups actually have in common. Underneath the surface, they're all kind of the same group, whether it's the SEALs or Pixar or the San Antonio Spurs. So hey, let's uh, take that. How do you... How do you view a business like the Navy SEALs, which obviously is, is well-known in this country? They do incredible work uh, in terms of protecting uh, our country and, and doing some of the jobs that, that are incredibly tough. How do you compare them then with the example of the San Antonio Spurs, which is a very unique culture, and it, it's brought forth as a unique culture, I think most specifically because of their coach, Greg Popovich? That's right. That's right. And when you look at those from a distance, they couldn't be more different, really, in some ways. And yet, when you look more closely, they're doing the same thing. And one of the key areas that I think people misunderstand is the role of vulnerability and, and the role of openness with players, with coaches, with leadership, and with the rest of the team. There's a Navy SEAL commander for the book. His name is Dave Cooper. He was the guy who trained the, the team that got in lots. And 
I, I tell his story in the book. And the way he put it was this. He said, the most important four words a leader can say are, I screwed that up. Yeah. And the reason that he said that and the reason that he lived that on his team is because we have this, we're deeply hierarchical. When our leaders are, we normally think our leaders should be sort of bulletproof and always ultimately confident. That's not actually how good teams work. Good teams work when people have permission to tell each other the truth. And there's no stronger single that signal than the leader saying, hey, I don't have all the answers here. What do you think? And that is what happens in all of these places. Because if you're going to succeed, you have to share accurate information. You have to tell each other the truth. And part of that, then, when you think about the example of the San Antonio Spurs with Greg Popovich, I mean, all you have to do, I think, is to a degree watch ESPN to see how open he is about not only a variety of different issues, but uh, he is open with uh, the successes and failures of his team. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. He, he tells them the truth, and he also loves them to death. I mean, there's a, there's a connection there that I would say all these teams have, too, of creating safety and Popovich is a genius at it because you see him yelling on the court and you see him connecting with his players on the court but what you don't see is that team eats dinner together more often than most families they he's constantly making dinner reservations ordering wine at the end of the year each coach on the staff gets a bound book with the menus of all the places they've eaten together and the labels of all the wines they've drank together huh. those moments that moment of spending that much time being genuinely curious on the day I visited the Spurs they, they were going to look at tape because they had lost the day before, so they watched videotape. What, what he put on the screen, what published on the screen, wasn't tape from the game. It was a CNN documentary about the Civil Rights Voting Act of 1963. <laughs> he created a discussion around that. He was genuinely curious. What, his, what, what do you players think? Would you have stood up during that time? What did your grandparents do? So that sense of being connected and curious and engaged with not just the job but with a person is what really happens across these cultures. And it's not magic. You know, Popovich is regarded and the SEALs are regarded as kind of, oh, they have this magical thing. It's not magic. It's sending a really clear, targeted signal that we are connected. Which, in the case of the Navy SEALs, ends up being something vital that they have to do in terms of the operations that they have and how they approach their, their work each and every day. That's exactly right. And they build vulnerability into their daily habits. They have got this thing that actually is applicable across every walk of life. It's called an AAR. It stands for After Action Review. And the SEALs do it after every single mission and after every single training run. It's really simple. You finish the job you do as a group, and then you stop and you circle up and you ask three questions. What went well? What didn't go well? And what are we going to do differently next time? And those meetings are hard, you know, because people are pointing out flaws and people are being open about weaknesses and they're saying, I screwed that up and you screwed that up. But it is by far the most important thing that a group can do together. You know, most groups do not get great feedback. There are facts that are hidden or there are big issues and the information doesn't flow. And AAR is an information machine. It allows people to build a shared mental model of the problem you're trying to solve together. One of the things you, you talk about with this uh, build safety, and when, when I was getting into the book and, and, and really before understanding what you were going with, I was trying to really pick at, at what build safety meant. But again, when you're talking about a culture of, you know, whatever the business might be, uh, safety is, I guess, to a degree, making people feel to a degree like they belong and like they are in the best environment so that they can 
uh, so they can succeed beyond maybe even their own beliefs. That's right. That's right. And there's, there's the, I would add a further distinction to what you said, too, and that it's not just sort of kumbaya, warm and fuzzy, we like you stuff. Sure, yeah. It is, it's really about, uh, about clarity. It's really about saying, hey, we're connected here. There's a, there's a cool experiment I write about in the book about a company that just, they, they, have this, they, they were losing people with, with, uh, with retention. They weren't retaining enough people. A lot of people were leaving. So they, they changed their training to just add a single hour where all they did was instead of having an interview where they talked about the group, they just flipped the room and they talked about, they asked questions about the new trainee. They said, hey, what happens on your best day? What happens on your worst day? If we were on a desert island, what skills would you bring to the survival? And that group, retention went up 270%. So it was, it was just a clarity of signal to say, hey, we're connected. We share a future. We see you. And, and with a lot of these examples, one of the words that uh, probably gets used a lot is trust. Uh, being able to trust in the leaders of that particular company or institution, but being able to trust one another as well. That's exactly right. I mean, trust comes down to you know cooperative behavior, not having to check. And we normally think about trust and vulnerability as as the following. We normally sort of think like, well, I'm gonna tr- I'm gonna I got to build up trust before I can be vulnerable with you. But in fact, what the research and the the habits of these groups really reveal is that we think about it backwards. We think that we have to trust in order to be vulnerable. But in fact, when you're vulnerable together, that's what builds trust. When these teams come together in an AAR, or when they come together to really talk about what happened and then talk about their mistakes, that moment of vulnerability actually creates closeness. It's like a cultural calisthenic. You know, We understand in our bodies that it's good to sort of feel a little bit of pain, that our muscles will respond by getting stronger. Well, groups are built exactly the same way by experiencing that sort of pain of saying, okay, what, what's, where, where do we mess up? Where did we do well? That is the thing that drives trust. So you can't just wait for trust to descend from the heavens. You actually have to build it by being purposefully open with each other. How t- challenging is that, though, uh, when you're talking about uh, situations where uh, at, at times, there is that that lack of trust, and, and I say that because you also highlight some some cases where uh, the this this culture code really did not work out. That that you didn't have enough uh, of trust in a in, in an organization, and it ended up to the detriment uh, of that business. That's right. Yeah, it was pretty fun for the for the book. Uh, of course, I visited you know cultures around the world, top performing, embedded with them. I also visited some of the worst performers. And it was just fascinating to see what a mirror image they formed of the good ones. And the best one that I, I, I researched had to do with the people who manned the missile silos in, the, in, the, uh, in Montana um, and North Dakota. And it is an absolutely terrible culture that makes all kinds of mistakes, has extremely low morale. Um, it's unfortunate these people have their fingers on the button, literally. But the reason that they do is because there is zero safety in that job. They're isolated physically, they're isolated mentally, and they have to be perfect. If they, if they make a mistake, they get uh, downgraded and relegated to a lower rank. And so under those conditions where there's no safety, nothing else can happen. Safety and connection are the absolute foundation of the pyramid. And so when you don't have that, you, you can't have a culture because our brains are just not built that way. We're not going to connect if, if there isn't that room to make mistakes. So smart cultures have leaders set a tone really early of fallibility and of vulnerability to say, look, 
uh, we don't have all the answers. We expect you to mess up, um, and we want you to use that as a learning moment. You know, the old authoritarian model of, of culture where, where no one could make mistakes and the leader always had all the answers and it was kind of top-down, that really, it worked for simple problems. You know, it really did. It, 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 it can work. But when the world is complex and it's moving fast and you need to have knowledge distributed to an organization and you need people to be able to take risks in order to be good, um, that model stops working. And what does work is when you're able to, to create a connection, a safe connection, and then through sort of the use of vulnerability and purpose, uh, create a giant being that's smarter than the sum of its parts. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in. Our guest is Daniel Coyle, who is the author of the book, The Culture Code, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I, I would imagine, I mean, obviously you saw some incredible examples of uh, of uh, of companies that have uh, unbelievable culture. I would guess, unfortunately, though, that there are probably more that don't the, these days and age, even though we're seeing more companies recognizing the fact that culture is such an important piece to being successful. That's right. And there's a, there's a, there's a cool distinction, actually, that, that, that is sort of timely, I think, to talk about. The normal reaction to culture is that, hey, we're just going to make things really fun, and we're going to make it engaging, and we're going to have a foosball table, and we're going to have a blast together. And that's, that is part of, of culture. It's important to, to have fun together. But I would say you can divide fun into two categories. There's shallow fun, which is foosball tables, and then there's deep fun, which is where the people in the company actually take ownership over what's happening, where they are given a budget to redesign the office space or where they are able to have a hackathon where they rebuild the HR function in the, in the company, where they really take deep ownership of their experience, not just their kind of sense of fun and foosball, but their sense of ownership in the organization. And so I think that when you see companies, and there was a recent study that showed companies that focused on deep fun and experience ended up four times as profitable as companies that focused on shallow fun or just mere engagement. Um, it's not just sort of, uh, it's not just important, but it's really smart to do, to approach. What can we do to give people more ownership over their daily experience? You also talk about purpose as well, and and uh, I think that's uh, obviously a very important part to to setting kind of an agenda moving forward for a lot of companies is to exactly what that purpose is that that company uh, wants to see. What purpose does the leadership want to see? That's right. That's right. And it really comes down to, to telling a story. You know, to telling the story of why we're here and where we're headed. Um, it's very, very kind of ancient brain stuff. And in many groups, it, it emerges in a moment of crisis. Certainly that was the case with Pixar. You know, they were, they were doing a follow-up to their hugely successful Toy Story. It was supposed to go straight to video. And they had this moment where they could say, okay, what are we really about? Are we about um, making A-level work or are we about making B-level work? And so they chose that they were really about the peak. And through that crisis, that push, crazy push to get that film done, Toy Story 2. They invented a lot of the processes. They made explicit a lot of the cultures. And that's what that moment of crisis ends up driving it. But that doesn't, we, we don't want to wait around for a crisis for it to form our culture. So it becomes really smart to sort of get away from the daily grind and, and try to do a culture capture and figure out 
ask deep questions about what you're really about. And two questions that help do that are the following. What gets rewarded around here? That ends up being a powerful question to ask. And the second question to ask is, tell me a story about something that happens here that doesn't happen anywhere else. And those are ways of sort of defining that indefinable thing that your group is made of and making that really explicit, really ranking your priorities, what's important, what's second most important, what's third most important ends up being powerful things to do. So you can you can give people a direction to go when times are tough. How much do you think this also uh, is a benefit uh, when you have the right culture to a topic that we've talked about a lot on this show uh, is employee retention uh, and not having people looking for necessarily that next job that they feel so good about what a company is doing and the people that are they are doing it with that there's no need to look outside. That's right. And that's, that is the giant payoff of working with people that invigorate you and that you feel connected by. And it's distinct from sort of just fun and niceness. There's a sense that, oh, working at Pixar must be really fun, and being a Navy SEAL must be really fun and invigorating. Yeah. It is, but, it's, but when you talk to people who are there, that's the hardest work they've ever done. It's not easy, shallow fun. It's deep fun. It's the fun of solving really hard problems. And a lot of them even have this feeling like, God, I... I, I would quit if I could, or they quit, and then they go back to it because they can't replicate the magic of those relationships. And that's what this all comes down to, the, the relationships of the people you work with. And those relationships, you know, we think of it as soft stuff, but underneath that soft stuff, there's a really hard grammar that drives it. And if you can tune in and use that grammar, you can build better relationships and build a better workplace. But it's it's also the expectation uh, before you join a company. It's the expectation of what that job is going to entail and what that again what that company is is asking you to do. Correct. That's right, and that hiring moment ends up being incredibly important. You know, there's few moments that that really define groups, and the two that define every group are the moment you bring someone new in and the moment you kick someone out. Those end up being really defining moments, and. That's why great groups are so intolerant of brilliant jerks. Um, <laughs> bad apples do not last long at these places because they want to protect the group, no matter how brilliant they are. That jerk-like behavior can drag the whole group down. The book is The Culture Code. Daniel Coyle is the author of it. Uh, you can join us at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, at BizRadio111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. The other piece to this, which we haven't touched on a lot, is is the bottom line business benefit to having this this culture. Uh, and while it may not be necessarily thought of directly, the bottom line benefit to a company when you have a lot of these pieces kind of coming together is significant. It is the greatest asset and, and sometimes the greatest Achilles heel of a, of a, of a group is its culture. We've seen both. We've seen companies that have, that have, you know, like Salesforce and Netflix that have risen on the strength of that culture. And we've seen other companies that have fallen because they haven't paid key attention to it. So it is ironic. It is the greatest, most powerful tool that we have for group success. And yet our understanding of it right now is almost sort of medieval. And so the idea that science is giving us a new way to think about that and learn it and control it is tremendously exciting. Dan, great having you with us on the show. Wish you all the best with the book. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Dan. Thank you. The Culture Code is the book, The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups. Daniel Coyle, our guest, uh, joining us on the show. 
and many thanks to him. It is available in bookstores and online right now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 